a Radio 191 FM podcast. Right now I'm joined by co-founder of New Zealand Alternative, an independent organisation promoting a progressive role for Aotearoa in the world, Thomas Nash. Morena to you, Thomas. Morena, kia ora, Jamie. Thanks for having me along. You're more than welcome. Thank you for coming in this morning. Um, you're in Dunedin um, to give a seminar entitled The World Lacks Progressive Leadership. Could New Zealand provide some? Um, right. National populism is on the rise. Fringe parties with neo-nationalism uh, neo policies, uh, you know, with nativism, protectionism and other ism traits are becoming mainstream. You know, they're becoming bit players or, or big players in governments that have to form coalitions. You know, that's their, their nice avenue for them to get into power. Um, you know, they're becoming the mainstream in Europe. America is gripped by nationalism. Um, and they show no sign of losing support, these parties, uh, in a world where resources are dwindling. Uh, automation is, is uh, on the rise. It's at full pace. Um, you want to change this with progressive policy and leadership, but can we actually... Do, can that actually happen? Or, or have we po passed the point of no return? Whew, a lot in there. There's a lot in there, yeah. Jamie. But let's, start, let's try and sort of see how we can navigate through some of that. I mean, you know... Firstly, yes, I think we can change the system that we've got in place and confront the challenges before us. And the reason I say that is if you look at the grand sweep of human history, mm -hmm. it's a history really which is, which is quite um, hopeful. Mm -hmm. we've, we've confronted a lot of major difficulties and problems of oppression, of discrimination, uh, of poverty, uh, environmental destruction, and we've actually... We've actually found solutions to those. Now, that's not to say that we're not in, a, in dire straits right now. We are. Mm -hmm. And we're facing climate and biodiversity emergencies that we that we have never really faced before. So yeah. I'd say the scale of the challenge is, uh, is, is perhaps uh, unprecedented, but I'd say our capacity as humanity and human societies to overcome such challenges is not unprecedented. So that's my first sort of point, I guess, uh, of saying we History would suggest we can do this, uh, but you, you come back to the other part of your question about the sort of background here around national populism um, and these these sorts of I'd say a fragmentation in a way, a breaking down of the kind of political orthodoxy that has been rather comfortable for the last mm. 40, 50 years of essentially liberal, democratic, uh, you know, Western capitalist society controlling resources and controlling the structures of power. That is that is fraying at the edges. Yeah. Uh, and I think people who kind of run the orthodoxy, the kind of political uh, elite and the business elite, they're struggling, you know, including in universities. They're struggling to even understand this. Uh, let alone figure out ways to confront it. So, you know, I think we need to recognise that, that nobody has an answer, uh, and that it's actually up to all of us to work together and figure an answer. And so our, you know, the seminar this afternoon, we'll, we'll look at some of this, and, you know, there may be more questions than answers, but we'll try to, we'll try to provide some, some direction as well for how New Zealand, how Aotearoa New Zealand as a country in the South Pacific, uh, with a lot of uh, positive ingredients and a lot of negative ingredients, could could actually contribute to shaping the future that this world is is going to need to embrace if we're going to survive and flourish in the 21st century. Yeah. Th these these parties, though, f you know, they're, they're getting 
into power off the back of some policy, but they're nading other policies. But they're getting in the back of um, people fearing they're going to lose their jobs, their livelihood, their culture in a way. I mean, I'm talking about Europe here uh, and the United States uh, and Australia. Um, you know, they're, they're worried they're going to lose those things. They, they're worried that their way of life is deteriorating. And that's not really going to change with progressive policy. You know, th- th- those feelings aren't going to subside. And these parties are the ones that are saying, yes, that is happening and we want to fix that, we want to change that. So how do you counter, how do you counter people's feelings like, oh, shit, I'm going to lose my job? Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think the, the fundamental point here is that our systems, our mechanisms for organising economic production and industrial output uh, have been, they're flawed. Yeah. You know, they're not working for everybody. The, the system of, you know, globalised liberal democracy, it hasn't really worked for everybody, has it? No. And, and, and so that is, uh, as a result of and it wasn't really meant to work for everybody either it was a deliberate political project this is not some kind of oh we just sort of staggered into you know liberal neoliberal economic paradigms by mistake this was a deliberate political project that some people thought well this will be a great way of organising our economy Mm. and they had an ideological position which was that government should be really small and uh, private enterprise should rule the roost and human beings individual humans are rational economic maximisers and they should be trusted to organise everything (laughs) and do everything brilliantly themselves and and you know that hasn't that experiment it hasn't worked and i think if we if we were honest with ourselves uh, we should admit that that hasn't really been massively successful yeah. and you can argue about why that is but the fact is inequality on many measures in many countries has increased and a lot of people feel left behind mm. and they don't just feel left behind by the fact that their wages haven't gone up and in some places you know, have actually gone down relative to um, you know, inflation. Mm. They don't just feel left behind by that, but they feel left behind by the sort of smug, um, bright uh, kind of uh, image and way of life that people in the big cities uh, have have been able to embrace because they've just become fabulously wealthy, enriching themselves effortlessly uh, through property and uh, and and money. That other people don't have. So I think there's there and 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 rightly so, you know. And this is and, and, and the worrying thing is that there are, there are parallels here with the 1920s and the 1930s, where you had a a rise in fascism uh, within Europe on the back of uh, a massively unequal situation. Oh, reparations were, was a massive part of that, right? Exactly. So I think we need to we need to recognise that this we can't just say oh we need to we need to. Uh, shore up the international rules-based order and, and globalised liberal democracy. Uh, yeah, yeah, we can't just say that without recognising that we've left people behind. Yeah. And so we need to understand why, how we've left people behind, and then we need to confront those things. We do, but we don't, I mean, people don't care. Like, the ones that have the biggest voices that scream the most, and, and if you look in Aotearoa, look at capital gains tax lately, you know, as, as one thing. Um, you know, the, the, there was a lot of fear-mongering out there. There was a lot of spin put out there. Uh, and, and that took hold. And then people were scared that, oh, you know, the, the prices are going to drop, therefore I'm going to lose mine, and I don't care about those other people that need to come up mm. because I don't want to go mm-hmm. down just a little bit or have the ability to lose out on a full 100% of a profit that I might have made on just mm-hmm. my home. Yeah, and I think we, we you know, I feel like in New Zealand we are slightly obsessed with private property, mm. and I, I feel actually that this there is probably a... 
a kind of cultural identity aspect to this uh, that comes from colonization uh, where you know the the this 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 modern New Zealand is founded on a document that was essentially uh, a deal crafted by the crown to allow it to acquire land uh, mm. and carve it up and uh, you know we <laughs> We have to recognise that the the emergence of capitalism as a system of economic organisation and land ownership um, is 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 inextricably linked to colonisation and the British Empire in particular finding well finding new land that it could then yeah. carve up and sell off and you know make really productive. So so these things are, all, are kind of all linked. Um, and I think you're you're right that uh, yeah it was it was very disheartening to see the the kind of mainstream response a rather selfish yeah. response to the capital gains tax but i also think that was that was sort of ham-fisted in its in its political management i mean you if, if if really we had wanted to make the tax system fairer and shift the burden away from those who are effortlessly enriching themselves through property towards those you know, in favour of those who are who are working really hard and getting taxed on their income, then we should have said that. Yeah. We should have led with that. That should have been the framing, not you know, capital gains tax. And so I, I actually hope that this experience for, for this government, you know, future governments will be that okay, don't lead with the capital gains tax, a, a really detailed, uh, specific tax policy, but lead with a value yeah. that you want to see shifting in the fairness of the tax system, and then let flow from that whatever the specific policies might be. And they might be even actually more progressive mm -hmm. than a capital gains tax. In fact, I think they probably will be. Well, our obsession with housing began with that because it was all about the Kiwi dream, but at the same time in the 50s we also had a progressive policy of building social housing. Yeah, that's right. And actually, I mean, you know, housing has, has been an inherently political issue in New Zealand. If you look at the, the graph of uh, state houses built and state houses sold, it goes, it goes, state houses built goes up whenever Labour gets in and falls off a cliff whenever National goes in and state houses being sold skyrockets when National gets in and then yeah. falls off a cliff when Labour gets back in. So, I mean, this is, it's a, it's an ideological issue, right? And so if, when people say, oh, it doesn't really matter who's in, I think it, it, it does a bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. It certainly does. It certainly does. Um, you know, is, is New Zealand progressive? Are we progressive? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it obviously it depends what you mean by progressive, but, uh, and, and obviously we've got to look at are we, are we taking a sort of um, relative uh, comparison here? And I think if, if we think that progressive is essentially looking for solutions and being willing to uh, think beyond the status quo to, to acknowledge problems and find creative solutions, then uh, you know, I think we have the potential to be quite progressive. Yeah. And I think some of the things that we've done uh, just in the last 18 months uh, that we've seen this government do in the last 18 months, I mean, uh, you know, paid leave for victims of domestic violence. I mean, that's, that's, mm. that's a world first. You know, we're yeah. doing the, you know, the, the ban on offshore um, drilling of oil and gas, the zero carbon bill. These things are the well-being budget that we're going to see in a couple of weeks. These things are actually being noticed overseas by countries who are saying, hey, Hang on a sec. There's a country down in the South Pacific that seems relatively serious and credible that's doing some things with its policy in various areas, uh, and actually that, that could that could be a precedent for us to adopt. And this is the point that we're trying to make with New Zealand Alternative, uh, our organisation, is that precedent matters yeah. internationally. You know, when countries are deciding, well, could I do this with my policy? Could I put this in my budget? Could I adopt this type of foreign policy? They're looking to see, has anyone else done it? Yeah. Has yeah. anyone else ever done it? 
Mm. And so I think that's, and obviously we ask ourselves that, our government asks itself that. But So I think we, we stand, um, we could really provide a lot of progressive precedent for other countries as, coming back to our first point, as as we all, uh, people on this earth, try to figure out what kind of system we're going to be able to put in place to replace the one we've got now, because it hasn't really worked, uh, that will allow us to confront the emergencies we're facing on climate and biodiversity. Well, that, exactly. But, but, you know, with that comes the not-so-progressive parts of, our, of what's going on. And, and you, you look at um, protectionism over farming. You know, our biggest greenhouse admitter, um, you know, we had the zero carbon bill and, and the methane bill, which I kind of liked. I liked the way that methane thing is tracking. I, I yeah. think it's a, it's a great idea and we have to um, move that a little bit slower. Um, but, you know, we, we're living in an egg, one egg and all, all our eggs in one basket economy. That, that's New Zealand. Well, that's what they say. It's not true. Tourism's our biggest earner, but everyone forgets about that and the farmers sure how don't like to tell you it. Um, but we do have... Pref- protectionism over farming when it comes to you know yeah i mean i think i I mean i feel like farmers have been massively let down by politicians and bankers in particular i mean if if you look at the history of um, farming and the economy of farming in new zealand over the last you know 30 40 years what you'll see is a, a huge number of um Farms that were essentially sheep farms, yeah. or sheep and beef farms, that ha- that were converted to dairy mm. because banks were pushing this as Give a result of money. commodity prices mm. for uh, dairy going through the roof internationally as demand for dairy products grew in places like Asia. And so it's the banks, really, that have pushed a, a kind of false productivity um, mentality yeah. towards farmers and say, well, if you want to, if you want, if you want to loan some money on your on your farm, well, you better convert to dairy. And you know, if you want to, if you want to keep up with your payments and get some more money, well, you better get a few more cows on there <laughs> yeah, and start you know, right. pumping out your your, your your milk. So it's really, I, I kind of feel like farmers have been totally screwed over by this, and they and I can understand the frustration. Uh, but really, you know, we should be. I, I think if we were if we were honest about the future. We would not be promoting a a meat and dairy based future strategically for our farming economy. Mm-hmm. We would be looking more to diversify into plant based protein and other high value exports. Uh, and I mean, this is this is well known. Yeah, you know, we need to do that. Yeah, I mean, even if I were going to stick with dairy for a while, just switch to organics. Uh, as as a good start, you know. Yeah, I mean, this is what Ireland's done, and an interesting thing about the Irish economy, which which is uh, you know uh, talking about up and down. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they, and, and but the thing with Ireland was that you know it it went through a period where it, it kind of missed the boat on um, you know converting away from small scale smallholder kind of organic because they. They weren't meaning to be organic. They were just organic because they weren't sophisticated back in the day. And then they sort of missed that whole technological advance. And now they their farming is doing really well because it is it's still organic. And yeah. So now that's a premium product. So yeah, I think there's there's a lot in that for us. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Appropriate I, land use. But but I mean, it's going to be difficult to turn that back now because you know. It will be. But I mean, I think you. One of the things that I think is quite encouraging is the Maori economy here, where uh, in, in a sort of coming towards a post-treaty settlement era, you've got a, a Māori economy that is huge and yep. growing, and growing faster than the rest of the economy. Yes. And, and this is really encouraging because there's a, there's a much longer time scale for plans. The Wakatū Incorporation in, uh, in Nelson area, that has a 500-year plan. 
Yeah. So this is starting. You're starting to look at massive rewilding, uh, regeneration of native bush, uh, continuous cover forestry. This is really uh, this is really exciting. I think for for biodiversity and climate. That's fantastic, but we still see the Mackenzie Basin turning green, and it really freaks me out. Yeah, and uh, and I think we need to we need to get organised around that. Yeah. People need to say, well, this is this is simply not acceptable. Yeah, uh, and uh, yeah, I think government needs to it needs to hear that. Yeah, but but there's an, but everybody hears the other side of it, and like as soon as you know, as soon as you mention farming, the country gets up in arms because. They see it as our our biggest earner and and the and therefore our biggest job creator as well. But that's simply not true either. But they're very good at putting out spin. Yeah, and I, I mean I think some some people uh, get entrenched in their views and they and yeah. they find it hard to listen. And there's been a lot of work done. Jess Berenson Shaw, and if you've read her book. Uh, um, a matter of fact, it's called, and mm-hmm. it's, uh, you know, speaking truth in a post-truth world. And she talks about uh, how to com- how to communicate to people who ha- who just don't agree with you and aren't really hearing you. And a lot of what she's talking about is, you know, it's appealing to people's uh, emotions and telling a story and connecting with people rather than giving them facts yeah. and kind of debunking their a lot of what we do we, we tend to sort of try and debunk no you're wrong I'm going to tell you why you're wrong but actually I think we need to have a slightly more uh, compassionate approach to each other and operate in a collective problem solving mode not say farmers are wrong I'm right here's what you need to do it's more like yeah. okay well how can we fix this problem together so just for New Zealand to become a, what you want to see for us to be that progressive leadership for for the world to see is not go out there and tell the world what to do, but to lead by example, right? And then to show them that it works. Yeah, that these things can work. Yeah, that's right. So, well, so I'll give you an example. We, when we um, set up the organisation last year, we launched with a, a detailed publication, a research report on how New Zealand might contribute internationally to conflict prevention efforts mm. you know, working with other countries to you know try to prevent conflicts before they break out and try to help reduce tensions and violence uh, when when situations of conflict do arise and and you know when we when we talk to people about that we talk to you know ambassadors peace activists uh, you know people from overseas Norway Germany uh, people who are involved in in this kind of work people who've been conflict mediators peace mediators themselves New Zealanders the people from the army etc what we what we found was that this is you know New Zealand could could play a really useful role here in helping to promote peace peaceful dialogue mm-hmm. uh, and and to you know, undermine the the tensions and the drivers of conflict and violence that we see and one of the reasons that we one of the things that came up was well we have our own history of violence in New Zealand between Maori uh, and the the colonizing force of of the british empire mm. and and we need to we need to sort of acknowledge that and 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 you know we've we've had a a kind of mediation mechanism for that which has been the treaty of waitangi te Tiriti o waitangi and the waitangi tribunal more recently and so and that is not that is not a perfect system at all you know there are many problems with yeah, it but yeah. the fact that we've had it and that we have that experience of of mediating that conflict through this through this founding document of our nation, it's interesting to other people. Yeah. And there's a lot we can learn from it. And so I talked to the, when we were doing this research, I talked to a woman who runs the UN, United Nations uh, Peace Mediation Support Unit. Uh, and 
she said you know when when countries talk to other countries and they and they show their scars they have they have mana with those other countries yeah you know it's if you if you're honest about and so i think that's what we need to do as aotearoa new zealand when we're talking to other countries we need to we need to do it in a humble way, acknowledging the the work that we've done, the what we're wrestling still with, and show our scars. You know yeah. that that builds that builds confidence and it builds rapport with other countries. And I think we we there's a there's a huge opportunity for us in that area. I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, we kind of do that. I think we've been doing it recently, especially with Jacinda, um, with Trudeau and what goes on in Canada. Because I mean, that's the hidden ugly truth of Canada that no one knows about. Yeah, and I mean, I I would hope that our prime minister, with her relationship uh, with Justin Trudeau, will be able to talk to him about yeah. indigenous rights yeah. in Canada, about the fact that they are trampling all over them, and ex- you know exploiting natural resources um, at the expense of indigenous rights. I really hope that our prime minister would be able to mm. to talk to him about that. I like that. I like that exposing our scars. I think that's a, a bit. I think it's quite poetic. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought it was a brilliant point that she made. Yeah, mm. we quoted her. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. All right, um, Thomas, we're running out of time. Okay, because we've talked for twenty five minutes. Oh my goodness! You said it would go fast. You said it would go fast. Hey, that's great. That was really enjoyable. <laughs> so, um, just give us a little bit of more of a breakdown of what you're going to be talking about today. Okay, sure. So, to this afternoon, four p.m. Uh, we it's in the Richardson Building. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Six in four. Yeah. So we'll. Basically, the, the setup is uh, the world lacks progressive leadership. Could New Zealand provide some? So we'll talk a little bit about the organisation New Zealand Alternative that uh, uh, a group of five of us uh, New Zealanders have, have set up last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll talk about how New Zealand could do foreign policy differently, and I'll touch on a on a few specific areas. Uh, we'll, we'll look a little bit at the global context as well briefly, and then I'll touch touch on a, a few specific areas, including conflict prevention, environmental justice, and a couple of others, which I'll maybe save up to encourage you all to come along. Good, good. I assume that Kevin Clements will be there then, if you're talking about a bit of uh, prevention, war prevention. I hope so. I should have got in touch with him, actually. Yeah, he's a fantastic man. Fantastic yeah. man. Hey, uh, Thomas, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Oh, Absolute sure, Jamie. Pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Now, you are more than that was a Radio 1 91 FM podcast. You can find more at r1.co.nz or wherever quality content is found.